Happy Teach Us. Welcome to the We Teach Us podcast, a space to reimagine our education system. This is episode one, and I'm your facilitator, Ryan Dalton. Let's get started. Do now. All right, today's do now question is, if you were given unlimited political power and resources to make only one change to the current public education system, what would it be and why? A change I would make would be, well, I thought about it and I was like, set up maybe like a financial freedom program to where you can have individuals in impoverished communities and they, you know, show proof of income, show that they're trying to pay their bills and the government would essentially match it. That way you could, you know, relieve what's going on at home for the kids to feel better. But then I also thought about like, okay, we pour into that, there'll still be stuff wrong with the schools. Sounds like maybe we pay for something with the schools. And I was like, then it'll be stuff still wrong at home. So I just, I don't know, it's weird because there'll never be like one central problem. We can like throw money at to fix it. So it's, I don't know, maybe like some kind of collective way to heal all these wounds simultaneously. I think that'll be amazing. Um, say we have like more technology. So kids will like learn better. Like people be like when they see screens, they'll they'll do more work. But they gotta like have it only for like books but on screens. Say it like that. Something like that. Mm, I'll probably get more books. Probably. I would provide all students with the proper supplies that they would need in school. And that would be first thing, funding textbooks, um, technology, um, and figuring out how I could go about to integrate um, kids, uh, black and white, Latinos, all in the school together to make a better cohesive uh, educational environment. Oh, wow. Um, The one change that I would make would be four-day work days for for students and for, for the teachers. I don't think I could just add one thing. I think that if we want to make change that's sustainable, there's so much we could do. We could bring in additional personnel because I honestly think that would make a difference. But if they don't have the right heart and the right compassion and the right desire to see others grow and to impart what they have into the lives of the kids that God blesses us to teach, that won't profit. And if we change the facilities and give us new buildings, while that's good and necessary, that alone is not the key um, because I know great things can come out of um, miserable situations. And I, I gave more money and more resources so teachers could buy more pencils, papers, pens, books, computers. That alone wouldn't fix the problem because we're almost at one-to-one initiatives in many schools now. And that doesn't necessarily guarantee that students learn more or learn better and, and are more effective and that the teachers are more effective. 
so I need a, a combination of things to transpire that I think would affect some change over a long term, um, a long period of time so that we can see your girls grow up in a, in a better world, in a better space and have a, a fighting chance academically no matter where they went to school. This Week in the News. All right, this is This Week in the News, and this week and every week I have here with me my number one co-teacher, my real-life partner, and my wife, Ronice Dalton. Thanks for sitting with me. Oh, what a sweet introduction. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's, of course, my pleasure. Uh, so my first article this week is an article from NBC News. The title says, California's first Surgeon General screened every student for childhood trauma. So the summary of this article is Dr. Nadine Burke Harris has an ambitious dream, screen every single student for childhood trauma before mm -hmm. entering school. So that's, awesome. that's incredible. Like just off, <laughs> off the bat. Incredible. Amazing. So there's a little quote from here uh, right in the beginning of the article. Dr. Harris says, a school nurse would also get a note from a physician that says, here's a care plan for this child's toxic stress. And this is how it shows up. So the amazing thing that she's proposing is not only do they screen every child for childhood trauma, right. but they also develop a plan for that student. Because what is happening and what has traditionally happened in school, children are coming, as we know as teachers, children are coming to school with all this trauma mm -hmm. and often undealt with trauma. And they're not receiving counseling and supports they need. So the trauma manifests itself in other ways. Through It can manifest itself through illness, through um, problematic behavior, through isolation, depression, various things. And so the schools then respond in a punitive way often to these behaviors that are manifestations of trauma. Right. So the fact that she's actually proposing that we get to the root of this and deal with it, to me, is incredible. And I, I really would love to see this nationwide. Yeah, I love that it's a preemptive measure versus this reactive response that we have to student behavior. Yeah, because we, we often just in the school setting, we see reactions to things. So a kid acts out and we don't see uh, what I would consider a response. We see a reaction. So the kid acts out and the kid gets suspended or detention or whatever. But not very often do we see educators and schools and administrators getting to the root of that like why why did they act yeah. out why did they do that so this is a great uh step definitely all right so let, let's hear your first article okay my first article is from forbes.com and the title is teachers who quit to create schooling alternatives nice um, and just a quote from the article says, one of the pioneers of schooling alternatives is Kenneth Danford, a former public middle school social studies teacher who left the classroom in 1996 to launch a completely new learning model. Along with a teacher colleague, Danford opened up North Star, a self-directed learning center in Western Massachusetts. Cool. So it's like a, it's totally different from public school. What? Is it looking more like homeschool or? Definitely. It's um, a break from the conventional schooling that you and I know, as well as many educators that 
that is what really contributes to a lot of feelings of burnout and frustration with school is operating in the system on that the, we do. Be, on behalf of the teachers or students, the burnout? Teachers. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> just, just clarify it. Because <laughs> I guess it happens both ways. True. <laughs> um, but I like that these people are exploring alternatives to school outside of the dominant system. And their emphasis is on authentic learning and... Uh, relationships with students. So they they do follow a homeschooling model and they have to charge a fee. Um but the students could come as often as they like. Okay. And I think I think it's great. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. All right, so my second article is from True Activist, the website True Activist. Uh the title is Mindfulness and Meditation will now be part of curriculum in 370 schools in England. So this is amazing to me because um, we saw this actually either, I want to say it was a couple of years ago in a school in Baltimore, and the article does talk about this, but where meditation and mindfulness was used instead of detention, in place of detention. So the kids that would normally be sent to detention are sent to this special room where they meditate, they learn mindfulness techniques and they can cool down. And then they're even taken through a process of how to make right with the situation. Um, so this is, a, this is the whole country of England and it's 370 schools across the country that will be taught this in school. I think that's incredible. That's amazing. Finally, a skill that can help a student outside right. of school, right. <laughs> like in life. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that's exciting. It, it's hopeful. Um, I know England, actually, we see maybe on TV and stuff, and some of my friends over there, we see that they have issues with a lot of acting out with the youth and in their schools. So it's it's very hopeful to see that they're coming up with solutions that, to me, seem positive rather than um, the sort of punitive way of handling it. Definitely. I think the message, too, is that we have to be intentional about addressing the whole child. Totally. Not just academics. Holistic. But exactly. Love it. Definitely. <laughs> All right. What's your, what's your next article? All right. My next one, this is coming from LA Times. And the title is California schools can no longer suspend K through eight students for using phones. Perfect. Will this help or hurt learning? Uh, I think the article... And the title are a little bit mismatched. Okay. So in what <laughs> because, way? Because uh, it goes on to talk more about, um, it goes on to say that Governor Gavin Newsom prohibits suspensions for, quote unquote, willful disobedience. Ah, uh, willful disobedience. Yes. So cell phones falls under that category, but okay. it also talks a lot about anything else that a teacher determines is willful disobedience, uh, chewing gum, yeah. playing with your phone is one of those things. Uh, so what I like about this is that the, the push for this law came from educators because they found that black and brown students and native Americans um, were the students that were the most affected by this willful disobedience yeah. uh, claim for, from teachers. Yeah, willful disobedience is the thing that sort of is a huge um, tool used in this zero tolerance policing in schools and stuff like that. Be and it's where implicit bias really plays a role because 
willful disobedience can look different for one student to the next and from the perspective of one person to the next. So willful disobedience as a code and defiance as a code um, have really been used to, like you said, discriminate against black and brown students. Right. So at least, uh, you know, with this law being passed, uh, I guess it's good for five years. Um, teachers have to find alternative ways of handling uh, what I would consider minor infractions um, and is placing an emphasis on relationship, building relationships with students, which is something that we should be doing from the beginning. But um, I guess, you know, some people need a law in order for them to, enc- totally. to encourage them to develop a relationship with your, with your students. Yeah, well, that's great. And I think that's um, definitely positive steps in the right direction. Absolutely. All right. Well, this was This Week in the News. Thank you, Ranis, for sitting with me and talking about the news. My pleasure. All right. Well, I'll see you in a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I do. The other day, I passed a student in the hallway. He was outside a classroom he had been put out of. He was sitting on the dirty hallway floor, looking down, just staring at the ground. I said hi and asked what was going on. He said, Mr. Dawson, no disrespect, but fuck school. To be honest, that's no disrespect to me. I actually feel the exact same sentiments on a regular basis. Don't get me wrong, I love education, but I do not love the way school looks in America, the way schooling exists in this country. Some people say our public education system is broken. Others say it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. However you look at it, it is definitely clear that our public education system is not thriving in the way that it could be, and it is most definitely failing large populations of students and educators alike. The fact is, the education system sits within multiple intersecting oppressive systems, and whether intentionally or not, the education system helps to foster, grow, and reinforce the ideologies behind these oppressive systems, aiding in their perpetuation. The education system in America was created for a specific purpose, for a very specific population of people, and at its inception, it intentionally excluded specific whole populations of people. Now, we're trying retroactively to shift and change the system to meet the needs of all people groups, and we are failing miserably. Even the information that was deemed important to be learned and many of our ways of learning come from that same era and are completely outdated. In his TED Talk, Build a School in the Cloud, Sugata Mitra speaks about the kind of learning we presently do in our schools and where it came from. He explains that the education model that we know today was created about 300 years ago by the British Empire. Though much has changed in the world around us since the Victorian times, shockingly, our schools and ways of schooling look strikingly similar to the old Victorian model. Mitra says, Imagine trying to run the show, trying to run the entire planet, without computers, without telephones, with data handwritten on pieces of paper, and traveling by ships. But the Victorians actually did it. What they did was amazing. They created a global computer made up of people. It's still with us today. It's called the bureaucratic administrative machine. In order to have that machine running, you need lots and lots of people. They made another machine to produce those people. 
the school. Mitra continues to explain that in order for this administrative machine to be effective, the people being produced by the schools to become part of the machine must be identical. He continued, They must be identical to each other. They must know three things. They must have good handwriting because the data is handwritten. They must be able to read and they must be able to do multiplication, division, addition and subtraction in their head. They must be so identical that you could pick one up from New Zealand and ship them to Canada and he would be instantly functional. The Victorians were great engineers. They engineered a system that was so robust that is still with us today. Continuously producing identical people for a machine that no longer exists. The empire is gone. So what are we doing with that design that produces these identical people? And what are we going to do next if we ever are going to do anything else with it? Though Mitra says that particular Victorian machine no longer exists, we see its archaic frame still attempting to cram and crush students into standardized uniformity, pumping out a mass-produced group of homogenous graduates, kicking and pushing out those who do not fit the mold. For these reasons, and countless others unmentioned, many people are calling for education reform in America. But my question is, is reform what we truly need? Sometimes we're looking for reformation when what we really need is a revolution. Our education system in America is on fire, and we are trying so desperately to put that fire out. We are spending a profuse amount of resources to extinguish the flames and salvage the remnants as best as possible. As we continue to attempt to build around this burning structure, trying to create new things, maybe what we should really do is exchange our water buckets for gasoline and just let this shit burn to the ground. Sure, there are many revolutionary things happening in some schools and classrooms across the country, but those are not the norm. They are the outliers. And they have become revolutionary. Those educators and students have become revolutionaries as a necessity like roses that grew from the cracks of an oppressive system. We are creative. We are imaginative. We are amazing. We are powerful. We are capable of so much. What would it look like if we scrapped everything and started from scratch, a clean slate? What would it look like if we reimagined what education can look like in America? Close your eyes if you want, open your heart, and imagine with me for just a moment. Can you imagine what our public schools would be like if schools were properly equipped to deal with mental health issues? If students were treated like actual individuals rather than attempting to crunch and crush them into standardized uniformity? If students were encouraged to find and pursue their passions and interests and apply curriculum to that rather than for them to learn dry, outdated curriculum that they are not interested in? If comprehensive sex education included sexual orientation and gender identity was taught by highly trained professionals on the developmentally appropriate level in all K-12 schools, if teachers were paid a salary that actually reflects the magnitude and importance of the job we've been tasked, if all teachers understood and behaved accordingly to the magnitude and importance of the job we've been tasked, if we dismantled an archaic system of education that was created to benefit some while simultaneously excluding others and rebuilt something that is truly equitable, 
if schools and teachers were properly equipped to deal with the often intense social emotional needs of students, if quote failing, quote high needs, quote at risk schools were sent more resources and highly qualified professionals than the quote successful schools have, if standardized tests were done away with, if discipline was seen as an opportunity to learn, grow, and repair what was harmed, rather than to further isolate, exclude, and or criminalize students. If content, curriculum, and educators did not actively maintain, perpetuate, and promote institutionalized systems of domination, but rather work to dismantle them. If special education was not stigmatized and various ways of being and learning was truly valued and respected and schools were properly equipped for genuine, equitable, least restrictive, and effective inclusive classrooms. If the perpetual cycle of dehumanization was removed from our schools. If creativity was truly valued, embraced, and nourished in all K-12 classrooms. If schools were places all students and educators looked forward to going to every day. If schools had on-site daycares for children of students, staff, and parents, along with GED programs for aged-out students and parents. If lunch was seen as a part of the curriculum, an opportunity to learn about healthy ways of eating, socializing, and being, rather than a few minutes for students to cram a bunch of unhealthy food down their throats. If we brought back excellent vocational education programs in all schools, though it should be an option for anyone who wants it, college is not for everyone. If we stopped taking money away from and cutting arts programs in schools and instead pumped more money into those programs. Now I could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. I honestly don't think all of the previously mentioned wishes would be all that expensive either. It would just take some restructuring, dismantling, and rebuilding. On We Teach Us podcast, I want to spend every episode reimagining what public education can look like if we are genuinely committed to equity, justice, liberation, and true education. I'm excited to start this journey, and I thank those of you who have decided to join me. Let's teach together. Let's learn together. We teach us. We do. This episode's guest is a friend and former colleague, Jonathan Kwaku. Kwaku lives and teaches in Brooklyn, New York, and has been an educator for 10 years. He's passionate about history, community, justice, education, and he's most passionate about his students. At every school he's ever taught in, Kwaku has always been an absolute favorite teacher to the students. He embodies what education can be when it's done right. All right, Kwaku, thank you for joining me and being my first ever guest on the We Teach Us podcast. Could you please just start off by telling the listeners a little bit about your teaching background? Yes, uh, so it's my 10th uh, year. I'm in my 10th year teaching now, um, and I've uh, been teaching for my 8th year teaching in Brooklyn. I taught for two years prior in Boston. When I was in Boston, I worked at a private school but it was totally poverty funded, but it was for students. All the students lived at or below the poverty line. About 25% of them were referred there from um Department of Children and Families uh, from the state of Massachusetts. And I, when I was there, it was a, a middle school. The school was about, uh, it was minor, you know, it was pretty much a minority school, about 99%. Uh, black and Latino, mostly black and Latino. Um, but there was a group, um, people call, um, Cape Verdeans who are West African, 
uh, but they're a mixture of Portuguese and, and West African. Um, and they were a large group that sort of didn't really, I guess they didn't really build with black or Latino, but they were considered to be black. Uh, the neighborhood was a predominantly Caribbean neighborhood, the area called Common Square in Dorchester, Boston, currently teaching in Brooklyn now. Uh, I was teaching in a school in a neighborhood in East Flatbush, and now I'm in a neighborhood in Canarsie. Both neighborhoods, you could say, are overwhelmingly um, predominantly black neighborhoods or predominantly West Indian Caribbean neighborhoods. So you've obviously had the opportunity to work with a very diverse set of student populations in a couple of very different school environments, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on for this episode. Besides that, I know you're very knowledgeable about the system. You teach history and you're very knowledgeable about history. So I know your input is going to be very valuable with all this. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, My first question is this. Some people say the education system is broken. Some say it is doing exactly what it was designed to do. What would your response be to that? I think that's a good question. Uh, and again, depending on who you ask, it have a different response. Personally, I would say on a whole, um, it is broken. On a whole, I would say it is broken. Um, and I think it's broken for a series of reasons. I think the system that we have, is it's so limited in terms of what it offers students. Um, and just from so many angles, uh, we can approach it from a political, economic, socioeconomic, but even like, you know, people would often say, you know, it's almost like if you take a fish and you make that fish, you take it out of its habitat and you say, well, you know what, we're going to put you in an environment where you have to excel and do well and you have to climb a tree. The fish can't climb a tree the way a monkey can climb a tree. So what happens, I think we have a system that doesn't cater to all the needs of our students that's not totally uh, respectful and understanding to the context of the student and really sort of puts our students in a box. Uh, so it's a lot. Of, it's, it's the people behind the scenes who are often uh, who create, I guess, what are the expectations and also the system that we have in terms of politics and economics of how money and finances and resources are allocated and shared amongst students in different areas and neighborhoods so I think in a large part, the education system is is not really um, helping our students. Are there students that are able to do well in this system? Yes, of course, that exists. But I think in general, it really doesn't give our students a chance to bloom the way they could uh, due to so many factors that are involved. So you said the system is working for some students and not for others, and that there are specific factors that are stopping the system from effectively serving certain populations of students. Could you speak to those factors a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think a lot of those factors, uh, the key factors are one of the biggest things that's tax dollars. So if we're talking in the public school system, you know, the public school system is funded by tax dollars and uh, taxes and uh, are a big part of what, you know, drives what the school has. For example, uh, one school I was working on had a coworker who lived in a, a wealthy area in Long Island, New York, and she her property taxes were incredibly high. You know, they were more than $20,000 a year, her property taxes alone. And she said, you know, it was worth it for me to do that because she said, uh, with those high property taxes, you know, my student, my children, uh, my children had access to everything they need. It was a top-notch education. They ended up going to top-notch colleges, and she said, you know, I don't, you know, I have to do that. And she said, because 
the next town over from me in Long Island, uh, which is a uh, predominantly black and Latino town, she has a very bad school district. In fact, myself personally, I had cousins who lived in that district, and their father was a physician, so he, you know, had the means to send them to uh, some private school in the area instead of the the, the district, the zoning public school. But, it, you know, the people, the students often pay the price for they suffer for what their parents have or what their parents don't have. And so a lot of times uh, the way we create our, our like sometimes with politics you have gerrymandering, but it's tied to uh, district politics as well. Politics is, all, is written all over school systems. And so what happens is our funds are allocated towards certain students, uh, towards certain uh, neighborhoods, certain towns, and what happens is those students get a top-notch education. They have access to all types of resources, all types of technology, uh, all types of things they have access to. And then you have a lot of students, often in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods, who, you know, a lot of times they have a higher percentage of renters and homeowners, so you're not really getting that same property tax that you're getting from the homeowners. Uh, you have, uh, you know, people, you know, who are, uh, they're, they're working a lot. They don't have as much time to go to maybe, let's say, a PTA meeting and to be able to vouch and know their rights. And a lot of them sometimes, a lot of them are immigrants. Some of them might not be citizens. They have paper issues. So they're not going to the PTA meeting. They're not going to, they're not, you know, they're not going to, quote, unquote, rock the boat too much. They sort of are just working hard, tell their kids to try their best in school. But what happens is, you know, their kid doesn't have access to a quality education. And I think what happens is because those schools lack of resources, and support financially because of how the tax system is set up um, or how they'll draw the borders to towns to make sure that all, you know, that some uh, students can't get access or anything. Now you have a situation where the few people that, like some of the people that are able to do well are people who are more financially stable. They make sure they do everything to keep you out. And what happens is it's just a vicious cycle. And what happens with the teachers actually is, the teachers don't stay long there. So if I can speak for Brooklyn, well, now Brooklyn's a little bit different in the sense that uh, Brooklyn property taxes in New York City are actually not as high as property taxes in the suburbs of New York City. So the suburbs of New York City have higher property taxes. Housing is more expensive, but property taxes tend to be lower. And what happens, if I can speak for New York City, is when you're in what we call a quote-unquote high-need school, you know, your predominantly black and Latino schools, they're just pretty much training grounds for teachers. So, you know, you've got a young, excited teacher coming out of undergrad or grad school or a fellowship program, and they get to this school. And when they get to the school, they realize they lack resources. They realize their students lack resources. They're overwhelmed. Um, they're stressed. And so they do their two, three years there. And they go looking for a job at a more, quote, unquote, stable high school. Usually schools are predominantly white high schools. Or in New York City, uh, they might be more so predominantly Asian high schools. Um, and so, you know, that happens is the students in the neighborhoods who need more help, who need more resources, are left without more resources. Uh, then, yeah, they're left without more resources, but they also are left without teachers who really uh, – Talented teachers and uh, creative teachers and ambitious teachers, a lot of them, they just burn out. Sometimes, you know, some teachers use it as like a platform for them to get somewhere else. Some teachers genuinely do love their students, but they get tired and they're stressed and they're overwhelmed and they realize, hey, someone sold halfway across town. 
we making the same amount of money, but they have half the less stress I'm dealing with. They have way more resources I'm dealing with. And as a teacher gets older, they have more responsibility. They have a family. They're thinking about what's going to be less stressful to them. And so you have a system that just leaves so many of our uh, minorities or black and Latino students or, you know, um, financially struggling students behind. Okay, you hit on so many great points there, um, starting with funding of schools, which is largely due to taxes, um, which involves the zoning and even rezoning in some instances of some cities of uh, school zones. And then you really touched on how our neighborhoods are still very segregated and segregation is still an issue in many, especially of our big cities. Um, we still find that that's a problem and it's still affecting our school, our schools and our school communities. Um, and then you were talking about schools that we'll call struggling or high need schools in certain areas that already have lesser resources and they're kind of the training ground for new teachers or even ineffective teachers in many cases. Um, and they struggle with teacher retention rates. So already we're looking at this wild cocktail of factors that contribute to why our education system is failing, our students while it's failing, our educators and our communities. Uh, and we know that this is really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to these factors. You spoke about some personal things that you've seen, which really is a great segue into my next question which is how have you personally seen the education system enact discrimination and violence on marginalized groups? Wow, that's a great question. There's so I mean, it's, there's, there's so many marginalized groups. And right. I can even say I've had total exposure to all marginalized groups. Uh, the groups, I mean, I have the groups that I'm familiar with. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting. You see it. I mean, you see it in, okay, if I give one example, the first place I can speak from, is being a child of an immigrant. So I'm a first-generation American. My parents came from Haiti. And the system, I mean, it's automatically, it doesn't... So, for example, in terms of understanding their rights or in terms of language barriers, I mean, the needs of immigrants or uh, in these ways, it, it, you see how they can be treated at times. Even the school, sometimes, I don't even think they do it on purpose. Some people might be aware. I mean, I want to say they're aware the quote-unquote should have knowledge of how to deal with them. Uh, and the first thing is not having resources available to students coming from uh, different countries and families coming from different countries, finding a way to get them involved. Uh, it's almost like if you don't speak the language, it's, you have, you're hoping there's a teacher in that neighborhood or that school that can uh, translate for you, that can let you know what services are available for you. There's so many limited services. I'll give an example where um, in New York City, right, it's really strict in terms of being in compliance. It's in almost every school in some way, or shape, or form is out of compliance. It's just impossible uh, with limited money and limited resources to be in compliance in every single way possible. So I know for some schools, if you have uh, an English language learner and the English language learner they need and perhaps uh, maybe a power professional or uh, or classes, but they need class, actually they need classes uh, that are available or uh, someone who's trained to be able to teach them uh, dually, right? And if the school does not have that, then you you must uh, pretty much, you want to get a power professional. You can hire a power professional who speaks that language. So let's say um, uh, there's a student who speaks Urdu, and, you know, you're like, okay, well, we don't have anyone trained to really teach, you know, students along this line. Uh, so 
if we want to get an Urdu uh, power professional, someone who speaks that language who can help the student and the child, you have to fill in paperwork and pretty much say that you're out of compliance, that you don't have the services for this kid. Now being out of compliance now, you finally are able to get, for say, a power professional, someone who can help uh, that student who speaks Urdu. So a principal uh, or leader to the school, the head of a school is not going to want to be out of compliance. So what happens is you're like, well, here's a kid who doesn't speak the language. How am I going to meet their needs? I don't want to be out of compliance. So let me just figure something out. Maybe we'll just give them, I don't know, Google. We'll go them on Google, go to Google Translate. Hopefully they'll learn a language as they go along and just grade them on what we can grade them on, literally. And this is from them. In that sense. Um, also, from other ways, you have situations where, if I'm thinking about elementary and junior high school, um, your, your zoning school. So you have your zoning school, and with your zone school, uh, you're limited in where you can go. So you pay the price for your zoning school. And here's a system that says, well, you know what? We can't do nothing for you. You live in this neighborhood. There's nothing that you that we can do for you. So you have to send your kid to the school in this neighborhood. Now you go to your zoning school, and in your zoning school, you find that there's really not much available for you. And now this puts you at a disadvantage. Again, like we said, you're getting the teachers who are not as experienced. You're getting a school with less resources. So now you already start behind, right? And then that's in elementary school. Then you're going through, you're reading less words per day. You're writing less per day. You're not doing certain activities. You're not doing as much critical thinking per day. Then you get to junior high school, and you find yourself behind on this. And you get to high school, you find yourself behind on this. And then what you see is they have these state exams. I can't speak for every state, but I know New York is arguably the heaviest uh, state, uh, I mean, state testing state. So New York, you need to pass a minimum of five regions. Average kid needs to punch, yeah, a minimum of five regions to graduate high school. They need two social studies regions, an English regions, and math regions, and a science regions. They're trying to alter it now because there's been so much pushback and complaining. But you have these exams, for example, and other states, too. I remember when I was in Pennsylvania, they had PSSAs. In Massachusetts, they had MCAS. And, you know, even the culture of the exams. <laughs> and you give a student a question on a test, and it goes, all right, um, so Joe was, uh, was working out in his field, and he had a hole. And <laughs> he had a hole. And, you know, a, a rural kid will be like, oh, yeah, I know what a hole is. But some kid who goes into some neighborhood and is, you know, is seeing prostitution, whatever, in front of them, or whatever they're seeing, is like, oh, or what was it, whatever. They're looking at that and they're like, I don't understand this. Sometimes even the kid, like, it's an agricultural-based test, which I'm not saying that's a horrible thing to have, but it's not sensitive to the culture of the students. You know, it's not sensitive to the uh, students coming from different areas. And so it's just even how they set the questions up, and then they have these tests, and the tests really don't. Uh, these state exams, we have, I've had brilliant students. I've had some brilliant students, I mean, who are street smart. Um, they're good with their hands. They're good with uh, manual labor, whatever. And you, and, you, and you sit them down in high school and you make them take these long standardized tests that really have nothing to do with anything. I mean, it doesn't prepare them for anything outside of life. It's pretty much, it's, it's a type of literacy test, but in a sense, it's not really analyzing or assessing what a kid has learned over the years. So a lot of times, there are kids that if you speak to them, they can orally explain to you everything. I, you know, there was a, a Jamaican lady who was telling me that in the countryside where she was from, the people could memorize really well. Like orally, their storytelling skills, 
their poetry skills, their singing skills, their rapping skills, whatever, whatever they were into, they were very good already because some of them, not all of them, but there was a, a fraction, a portion of them that, you know, were illiterate. They could not read, but it doesn't mean they were not intelligent. And so because they could not read, they learned to memorize everything by heart. Now, you're going to tell me that person who can memorize these things by heart and know some of things that they're not intelligent? You know, so not to say is that there's nothing wrong with assessing your kids' uh, literacy skills. And I don't think it's wrong to maybe assess and compare kids to how they might be doing to certain peers or different groups or similar groups, but to pretty much hold them hostage off a test that's culturally insensitive, to hold them hostage on an exam that has nothing to do with anything they'll do when they leave high school and to not give them opportunities. And so it's weird. You know, I, I went to visit one time the biggest high school in Massachusetts. It's called Brockton High School. It's about 5,000 students. And Brockton sort of is going against the grain in the sense that most people have been saying smarter is better, but Brockton being the largest high school in Massachusetts, uh, about 70% of its students are students of color. Uh, the majority of them um, qualify for free and reduced lunch, and they've done well. And they have implemented a lot of literacy, uh, but what they've done is they've given students the option. So the, the high school has a restaurant anywhere. People want to learn how to run a restaurant and things like that, so a cook and stuff like that, they can do that. If they want to learn how to, uh, you know, be a mechanic, they can be a mechanic. If they want to learn theater and arts, learn theater and arts. And here's a school where you see, like, students, there's so many ways they can, uh, you know, they can sort of, you're sort of trying to figure out what's your talent, what's your skill, what's your passion, and we don't really give these students an option. We put them all in the same box, same test, same this, same that. And some students, listen, there's some students who are not meant to sit in a room, uh, sit at a desk for six to eight hours a day, and then because they can't pass the state test, it's a lot, and it adds up. And so what happens is so many students are left out, um, and they really don't get those, but you know what they need. Um, and, I mean, there's so many ways, even with a lot of our students who are minorities, you know, and those who are struggling, um, you know, uh, financially, they really just, it's, it's a system that's not created to help them. And even in terms of what's available to them in terms of, let's say they wanted to go to higher education and go to a college, uh, they don't have the resources to know sometimes how to fill out a FAFSA, they don't know how to apply, and some of them do apply and they end up in debt. Because they don't, you know, there's no, there's, there's so many lacking, so many resources lacking. And so, I mean, really there's so many ways that the education system literally, it it, it fails those. And even those who, uh, you have those who are struggling within um, the LGBTQ population. I mean, sometimes it's, there's so many ways where they don't have a, um, there's not like a space for somebody them deal with suicidal thoughts or dealing with depression and, a lot of times it's just there's not a resource in the school for them to uh, be able to open up safely to talk to somebody or they might not be able to, someone who can pretty much hear them out or hear what they've gone through. You know, a lot of our students have a lot of issues. A lot of my students have a lot of issues at home. They're living in, um, you know, they're living in uh, shelters. I'll give you an example. I had a student the other day in class. She was, she was a little bit, she was a little bit out of it the other day in class. And when she was out of it, she really, you know, she was a little tired, though, I saw it, too. And I just found out, you know, that she is staying in a, in a in a shelter. Some of them don't feel comfortable sleeping in the shelters. They don't know what's going on. And as a result, you know, they come to school. School is the last thing on their mind. And when they come to the classroom, 
The classroom is the last thing on their mind. School is a place where they escape their problems for a little bit. Yeah, they escape their problems for a little bit. Uh, it's a place where they can get a free meal. And pretty much that's it. So it's, you don't even know where to start. It's so much. Yeah. It's so much. Yeah, wow. You touched on a lot of great points there. The issues that we're facing as educators are so complex. And we're dealing with all these systemic problems. And then we have students that are coming with all their own issues and all their own baggage. And not all of them are coming to school to learn, per se. I love that you said that. They might be coming to school to escape their situation, but they're not necessarily coming to school to learn. And we know that's not true for all students, but we do see many schools who are currently struggling to meet the social-emotional needs of their student populations. And you yourself have worked in several schools where this is the case. So I want to know from you, when you go in your classroom, you shut the door, you have a group of students there, what is it that you do to create the magic, to see real education happen against all these odds, against all these systemic challenges that we're facing, against all the various things that students are bringing to you? How do you go on and how are you successful as an educator? That's a great question. And it's, it's something that you're constantly evolving and learning and growing in. Uh, I don't mean to sound cliche, but there's a very famous quote that says, uh, people don't know how much you care till they know. Uh, I mean, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Yeah. And that's a big thing, you know. And so um, our students, I remember when I was in Boston, I remember there was a, a teacher who came from an Ivy League school. Uh, she was interviewing, and I remember another one coming from a top-notch school, and she was interviewing I went to the headmaster of the school, and I said to the headmaster, okay, I, we have these people coming in. I want to make sure that the kids are behaving for them and that, you know, yeah. everything will be all right, that they'll be perfect. And the headmaster said to me, he goes, no, you don't have to tell the kids to put on a show. Let the kids act how they normally act. He said, when this person starts teaching here, the kids aren't going to be like, hey, you went to this Ivy League school, we're going to behave, you know. The kids don't care where you went to school. <laughs> they don't care who you know, how many books you've read, how many documentaries you've watched, how many journals you publish. They do not care. <laughs> <laughs> totally. With the extra bonus of them usually not caring about the content we teach. Correct. <laughs> it's an it's a uphill battle. But I think the biggest thing is for, humans, I mean, for students to see the human side of you, for you to get to understand your students, and to find a balance that's loving, um, but also has expectations for them. Because students definitely do have a good uh, antenna on them to sense if you genuinely care. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're, for lack of a better term, uh, coddling them all the time. That's not necessarily what it means. But they can understand that you have expectations for them and that you believe in them. I think, number one, you have to show students that you believe in them. You have to show them that you believe in them. Uh, because at home, a lot of times they're hearing a lot of negativity. And again, it's a, it's a systemic thing. You know, uh, if you, if your family, we're not, listen, my, my mother was alive when black women were given the right to vote in the United States. You know, so when you're looking at this, you're like a lot of their families are not too far removed from Jim Crow. And they're dealing with de facto segregation every day. Uh, and right. so a lot of them, sometimes it's, it's a lack of education. I don't, I mean, I guess you could say ignorance, but it's not their fault that's passed down. 
So a lot of times it's just like, you know, a parent is fed up with the kid, a parent is stressed, and they're like, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're not good for anything. Not necessarily saying the parent hates their kid, but in their stress and not really understanding other avenues to deal with the kid in a stressful situation, the kid hears, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, uh, you're not this, you're not that, you're not smart. And sometimes the they, reason they're acting up in school is because they don't uh, have confidence in their skills. A lot of times that's what it is. It's sometimes when they're acting up, it's a way to pull away, to bring distractions, I mean, to distract others from their lack of skills, their academic skills. And so the first thing is to believe, show the kid that you believe in them and that you that you that you know they can do good things, that you can, they can accomplish good things. That positive real, uh, affirmation is important. Reaffirming to them, hey, you can do it. That's all right. Great. You know, I would tell my students, listen, that whoever you consider to be the smartest person in the world was not born with all that knowledge in their brain. Uh, whoever you think is the smartest person in the world, when they wake up in their morning, they tie their shoes just like you. They, they wake up in the morning, they brush their teeth like you, and they bleed red blood like you. That's well, I would say to them, nobody is better than you. Nobody is better than you. Nobody's more intelligent than you. And if someone else can do it, you can do it as well. So I think building their confidence and letting them know you believe in them. I think also the way you present the content as well. The way you present the content, bringing the content to them. So if we're learning about economies or the effect of certain types of things, it's important for us to bring it. For example, um, today uh, in class we were learning about the French Revolution. Uh, well, we've been on the French Revolution for the past week and a half. And, you know, a lot of these students, there's not a connection to them. You know, they look at the people and look at what's going on, and they're like, okay, cool, whatever. But it's got to find, we've got to find a way to make sure that they can see how, hey, this is cause and effect, and this can happen today, and how can it affect you? So today we give, we did a small example. So France had something uh, called a states general. France was broken up into three social classes, the first, second, and third estate. And the lowest estate had the largest population, but they didn't have a strong voice in the government. So today, for example, we had the students stand up, and I had a bunch of images of different restaurants. And I said, okay, if we can bring one of these restaurants and put it in our school cafeteria, which one would you want? So we had, like, Chipotle, we had Chick-fil-A, Shake Shack, McDonald's, Wendy's, Popeye's, and I can't remember what the other one was. And they had to vote on it. And the majority, I remember one of the classes, the majority of the students chose Chick-fil-A. And then I pulled one student, I pulled two students aside. I said, okay, I whispered to their ear. I said, you guys have the final say. And they wanted McDonald's. So, like, it's like 30 kids in the class. 25 of them are like, all right, we want Chick-fil-A. Two of them were like, no, man, give me, give me McDonald's. And so I asked, okay, the results are about to come out. And when the results came out, the students who chose McDonald's, even though it was only two of them, their vote counted more than the students who wanted Chick-fil-A. And they were mad and they were angry. And so <laughs> what we were able to do was get <laughs> everybody upset. You know, they're like, ah, oh, man, you violated, man. Come on, you got to be tight. You got to be upset. You know, they're, they're going into their little lingo, you know, getting upset. And they got a chance to understand how during the time of the French Revolution, how the lowest, the class that was treated the lowest, a third estate, how they felt. They were the majority of the population, but the higher classes had more, uh, their vote counted for more. And so by bringing it to them, by making it applicable to them, by applying it to uh, their daily experience, uh, they were able to understand. So, like, well, how did you feel knowing that despite 
voting in one direction and, and being the majority, how do you feel with, uh, about that, about, you know, your voice not being respected? And so it gave them a chance to understand how people during that time period lived. So I think it's important, and I don't know, I, to be honest with you, I, I, it, I'm not a math teacher or a science teacher or an English teacher, and sometimes you're limited. That's another, there was another thing we could have went off on is the content of the curriculum they give us. <laughs> the curriculum that they give us, you know, right. it's, it's very, it's very biased, and that's a whole other discussion for another time. But you know, even they give me a curriculum that you know, I'm like, all right, this is cool, but you know, I think there's something, there's more about their history that they can get or that they can relate to. I have to find a way to still try to pull it and wrap it around and bring it to them. So that's really important. Um, but just, I definitely think, like you said, when you close your door, you have to create a culture in your room where. Students are not afraid to mess up. They're not afraid to fail. They're not afraid to take a chance. Um, that they can, that you can believe that you have confidence in them, but they can also believe, um, uh, they know that you'll reassure them, that you'll be there. You're there, you're their cheerleader, but you'll also hold them to a standard, right? You don't want them to get away with murder. You want them to do things that, you know, will help. And the reality is, I might give you a chance. I might be understanding, but the reality is, as much as I don't like it, when you leave these school walls, uh, society doesn't care for you. They have no pity for you. They don't feel bad for you. Uh, and so it's it's a sad thing, but it's something that I really have to sort of let them know, that, okay, hey, you know, I believe in you. I'm here for you to support you. You can do this, et cetera. But also, you, there's a limit to this. You can't, if they, you know, if they do something they shouldn't do, you got to correct them and, and challenge them as well. So students, there's so much, it's, it's so much. You know, you're trying to appeal um to them in so many ways, emotionally, socially, but I definitely think the biggest thing is creating a culture where students feel safe in the classroom, uh, safe uh, safe in terms of with you, safe with their classmates, um, give them a place where they can feel safe even from what they're dealing with outside of school, um, and then really taking the content uh, or the curriculum and finding a way to show them how it can apply to their life. And I think that's a big thing. I think that's when they might value, they'll tend to value it more and just really creating that. I think understanding the students, too. Uh, you don't always, it's a million things we're doing in a classroom, but I think it's important to also ask questions. You have to ask students yeah. questions. Who are you? Where do you live? What neighborhood do you live in? Where's your family from? It makes a big difference. When the student sees that you as a teacher care about who they are, that's when they start to put their wall down. These students have every reason to distrust you. I mean, they, they've had family members that have violated them. They have family members that have, um, that have, that they can't trust. So who am I to assume that they would trust me? And sometimes they've got to see that you care. And you can't force it. I'm not just one question you ask, you know, but they, once they're able to see that you genuinely care and take an interest in them, they put their guard down. And one thing I've learned is, Sometimes they could, like you said earlier, Ryan, they don't care about the content. They don't, and they're not going to fake the funk with you. But if they like you, and again, this is, I'm saying it again at a surface level, but if they like you, they'll do work in a class. Now, the work is not for me. It's for you, hopefully, that you can learn some skills at least that can help you down the line. But if they like you, they're like, you know what, I like, I like Mr. Dalton, so you know what, I'm not going to turn up in this class. I'm going to do this work. You know, as as corny as that sounds, it's actually it, it's an it's a key piece. You know what happens. So mm -hmm. I I don't totally control the curriculum. You know, so 
when they like you, they'll work for you, and they'll keep the class in check for you, too. And you're right. like, hey, man, you know, so these are things that you don't learn in grad school, per se. These are things that you might not learn in a, in a, in a, in a textbook. It's just it's, it's something that you I guess you, I don't know, you can learn. You can learn it regardless of conversation or however, but it's something that is definitely underrated as a teacher in terms of connecting and providing a place where your students feel safe. And once they feel safe, then they'll, you know, the learning starts to happen. That's right. And, and you know, um, I guess, unfortunately, the listeners have not had an opportunity to work with you to see you in action. Um, but I have, and I can say one of the things that I always speak about when I speak about you is your ability to build those strong relationships with students and teach in a culturally and I would say um, sort of even age relevant way to the students. You you really connect with them. You connect the content with them on their level and you make it so they can understand it. And that's one of the things I've always appreci appreciated about you. And you've always done a great job. And uh, another thing is how you connect with the students on personal levels, uh, like you mentioned. But uh, I've seen the way that that makes students feel special and I've seen how that builds that connection. Um, so yeah, uh, my hat's off to you for, for, for that. And I'm glad you mentioned it because you, you don't just talk about it, you live it and, and that's how you are. So it's been such a pleasure talking with you as usual. I thank you for being my very first guest on We Teach Us podcast. Uh, I'm excited about this being the first episode. Um, and yeah, uh, do you want to, do you have any final words, any final thoughts? No, thank you, man. Thank you for the opportunity. And I'm looking forward to this We Teach podcast as well. Say iron sharpens iron. And I just think it becomes, this can become a place for teachers to come and really give and to get and to just help each other grow and learn and, you know, expand our repertoire however way for our students. You know, so I'm actually right. looking forward to this podcast. I want to thank you for the opportunity. And I think by coming together and sharing out and making it be a great place for us um, to bring our ideas together and our experience together, our students will benefit. And in the end, we benefit. Although it's for them, it benefits everybody at the end of the day. Totally. All right, Kwaku, thank you so much again for, for joining me. And, uh, yeah, just uh, I really appreciate who you are, not just as an educator, but as a person. Um, you're an inspiration to students. I've seen it time and time again, and you're an inspiration to colleagues uh, and community members. So I just want to thank you for what you do and thank you for everything you bring to this field because you're one of those people that makes us look good. And uh, I know you're not doing it for yourself or for even your colleagues per se, but you're doing it for the kids. And I, I really and truly appreciate that. All right. I'm an educator. I'm in my 30th year. My single biggest concern is I'm supposed to teach every child that walks through my door to the same level. They all have to be tested the same way. Um, they're all expected to achieve and grow. The problem is they don't all come to me on an equal footing. They come to me from broken homes, from violent situations, from 
parents that have been taken to jail in the middle of the night, um, to abilities, um, even vocational type abilities that are different. Um, and But I'm expected to teach every single one of them to pass a state test. To me, that's absolutely ridiculous, and it has been ridiculous for 30 years, but it hasn't changed. As a matter of fact, in the last five years of my teaching, it's gotten worse and more intense that teachers have to make children perform, perform, perform. So I'd love some insight into how we can change that. Thanks. Hey, I am a science high school teacher, and I wanted to share my thoughts on the education system within the U.S. I first want to start by saying I love teaching school. I get so much fulfillment out of interacting and exposing my students to new material within each of our encounters. I did not always want to be an educator, but I feel so blessed that it found me. The hardest part about teaching is the pitfalls and inconsistencies within the education system, specifically the system that is public and serves those of low-income families. With everything in me, I cannot understand why things will not improve and who is to blame. Is it the parents? Are today's parents out of touch? Do they not care? Truthfully, many of our parents are not as supportive and concerned as needed. Why is that? Are today's parents older or younger? Are they working more or less? Do they have more kids to care for? I sometimes ask myself, do my students' parents value their education or do they trust teachers to do not only teach, but to discipline their children as well? Is it the system? Many low-income public education systems are more concerned with maintaining the population of their school versus cultivating positive environments with high expectations. Many times we have to deal with students who repeatedly get into trouble and wreak havoc on us and their peers. As an educator and parent, I understand working with kids and helping to breed better choices. So I am not saying students cannot change, but what about the ones who refuse? What about the ones we all know won't change? Don't they deserve a better solution? Supplies and facilities, Lord knows I can talk about this forever. I am currently teaching at a school that is not fully air conditioned in the heat of the summer and spring and because I am in the South every other season too. Our students are expected to function in the worst conditions. How is this okay? Why is no one in an uproar? Why do we accept this? I'm teaching within a system where copy machines, computers, smart boards, and printers are not dependable. Paint is peeling from walls and some windows don't even close. Sometimes they work, other times they are not functional. But I'm expected to teach and be great without proper resources and support. Attendance is another major issue. It is not a surprising event to walk down the stairs after school has begun and see 30 students in line who are tardy. In that same instance, we may have 30 to 50 who just chose to sit at home, who do not come at all for no reason. Because many of our students are not properly valued, they get to high school and do not possess the skills to master upper level courses. All in all, I am not sure what the solution is. I do know that it all does not make sense and I am mentally, emotionally, and physically drained as I combat these issues and thoughts every day. Is it your homework? 
So for the extended learning this week, I recommend going on and watching the full TED Talk by Sugata Mitra. It's called Build a School in the Cloud. He really speaks about ways that we can be reimagining education through technology. I also recommend the old classic Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozal, because though it was written many, many years ago, a lot of the inequalities he speaks of still exist in our current system, and it's some of what we spoke about on this episode. Another recommendation that's related to this week's topic is A Talk to Teachers by James Baldwin. I like to start every school year with that, so I think it's only appropriate that in this opening episode, I would recommend that. He really speaks about what it's like to educate and be educated within a society that maybe doesn't want the most conscious of individuals. For these suggestions and more, go to weteachuspodcast.com and go to the extended learning page. Exit ticket. The education system in America is failing us. And at times, especially as educators, it can feel debilitatingly overwhelming and hopeless. We know that the issues are numerous, complex, multifaceted, intertwined, and many are trapped in history all of which can make change feel completely out of sight, even on a good day. However, we cannot undermine the power that we have to make change by getting lost in a fog of hopelessness. On We Teach Us podcast, I want to examine our system, but not merely to get stuck on the problems we see. Because for every problem, there's an opportunity for change. We have to be people who push for that change. We have to examine and question the system. We have to push for change, and we have to fight for something better for ourselves and our kids. Join me weekly as we reimagine education together. In the meantime, visit our website at weteachuspodcast.com. Follow and interact with me on Twitter at weteachus. Like the Facebook page, facebook.com backslash weteachuspodcast. And call in and leave a voicemail to give your input for the You Do segment of the show at 615-348-7303. Lastly, subscribe to We Teach Us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on and spread the word. We We Teach teach us. Us.